Mongols, China's northern neighbors, began amassing an invading army. The Chinese built a wall to keep them out. The Chinese made it too high to climb over, too thick to break down, too long to go around. In fact, the Great Wall of China stands even to this day. Yet, in the wall's first 100 years of existence, China was invaded three times. You see, the problem wasn't the wall, but the men who guarded it. All three invasions occurred when the enemy bribed the gatekeeper to leave the gate open. China's fatal flaw wasn't building the wall, but it was building the wall without building the character of the men who would monitor its access. And God didn't want to make that same mistake with Israel. He had commissioned the governor Zerubbabel to take the Jews back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. But he knew construction of the temple would be to no avail without working on the character of the people. And so he sent two prophets to encourage the nation. When the Jews got distracted from their work on the temple, the prophet Haggai came to encourage them to finish. And God also raised up a second prophet. His name was Zechariah. He challenged the people to be holy, to walk in God's spirit, to trust God with their future. You see, Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries. Haggai began his ministry in August 520 B.C. Zechariah began his ministry just two months later. Sort of like Felix and Oscar in the old television show, The Odd Couple. Zechariah and Haggai were an odd couple. They were roommates chronologically and circumstantially, but they were worlds apart in terms of approach and priority and personality. You see, Haggai was a doer. He was a blue-collar guy who brought with him hammer and nails. He demanded that the Jews get back to the business of temple building. On the other hand, Zechariah was a dreamer. He spoke to the nation through eight God-given visions. Haggai was practical. Zechariah was spiritual. Both cared about rebuilding the temple and the glory of God, but their approach to the task was different. You could say Haggai wore a tool belt. Zechariah wore a prayer shawl. Haggai cut stone with a saw. Zechariah saw dreams when he prayed. Haggai was all action. Zechariah was all vision. Earlier, I called them the odd couple, but actually, both of these perspectives are needed. Even in church work, we need to both work and wait, pound and pray, do and dream. Well, verse 1 begins the prophecy. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, or November 520 B.C., but notice the method of the dating. Zechariah arrives at this date based on the reign of the Persian king Darius. And this is different. Prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jews to Babylon, dates were based on the Hebrew kings. Now, though, there is no king in Judah. The times of the Gentiles spoken of by Daniel and Ezekiel and Jesus and Paul are now in full swing. With only a short reprieve, Israel has remained under Gentile control 
for the last 2,500 years. And this is what excites us about today. For the first time since the days of Zechariah, Israel enjoys self-rule. The times of the Gentiles, you see, are coming to a close. And this is when the Bible says God will turn his attention back to Israel. Messiah will return. And he will fulfill his promises to the Jews. This is why we're living in exciting days today. So in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, and here names become strategic. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. This is why we named our firstborn Zechariah or Zachary or Zach. His mom and dad prayed that God would help them to have a baby. The Lord remembered us. And thus we named him Zachary. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Berechiah means Jehovah blesses. Edo means in his time. And so put it all together and here's what it says. God remembers and blesses in his time. And this was a reminder to the Jewish people. They had spent 70 years in bondage, living in exile in Babylon. Now they're back in their land. Though the city's in ruins, though the temple's been reduced to rubble, though all seems lost, though the situation seems hopeless, they're asking, would God remember us? And it was the prophet's name who brought them hope. But hope starts when you deal with your sin. And that's how Zechariah begins his prophecy. Verse 2. The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. I hope you notice that God gets angry. He does. He has emotions. He's passionate. You can delight God's heart or you can grieve him by your rebellion. Isn't it amazing the power we have over God? You know, we can impact God. You know, we can incite his anger or we can incite his favor. The Jews' fathers had been put on the shelf by God for 70 years. God was angry with these fathers. He sent them into exile because of their idolatry. Over and over, the prophets warned them that they were breaking God's heart, but they turned a deaf ear. Finally, to get their attention, God brought disaster on the people and on their nation. Of course, that was the fathers, this new generation. Would they learn from their fathers? Would they repent? Zechariah begins his prophecy with four appeals for the returning people to repent. In verse 3, they need to look up and repent. In verse 4, they should look back and repent. In verse 5, they should look forward and repent. And in verse 6, they need to look down and repent. Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the word repent means to return. These Jews were returning to their land, but more importantly, would they return to God? Would they return their hearts and their loyalties to God? One dark night, I was headed home, 
traveling up Interstate 75. It was late at night. I was getting sleepy. And so I stopped in Forsyth for a cup of coffee. You know where Forsyth is off 75? I stopped in Forsyth for a cup of coffee. When I got back on the freeway, I drove for about 20 minutes when suddenly I realized I was on the outskirts of Macon. It is a horrible feeling to realize that you have driven nearly half an hour in the wrong direction. Immediately, I did a bit about face, got off the freeway, did a 180-degree turn, headed to Atlanta. I repented. I turned around. And this is what I did when I gave my life to Jesus. It finally dawned on me I was headed in the wrong direction. I looked up, and I returned to the Lord. Sadly, the word repent is what's missing from today's Christian vocabulary. People want God's blessing, they want his strength, they want his guidance, even his forgiveness, but they don't want to stop doing what they're doing and embrace the changes that God has for them. They want to add God to the direction that they're already headed. They don't want to disrupt that direction. Oh, God can help me get there faster if he gets on board. That's the attitude. We never consider that God's plan might just be to change our course. Real repentance is when I stop dictating terms to God and when I become open to His agenda for my life. Well, they needed to look up and repent, but verse 4 instructs them to look back and repent. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. God wanted them to learn from their father's mistakes, not repeat them. Hey, the Arabs have an interesting saying. It goes like this. The road is wiser than the man. The road is wiser than the man. The road a person travels has a predetermined destination. Hey, if you're driving west on I-20 and you don't want to end up in Birmingham, you need to turn around, man. Because if you stay on the road, it doesn't matter where you think you're going or where you want to go, you're going to end up in Birmingham. And likewise, the road of rebellion or the road of bad influences or the road of greed or the road of pride, you get on that road and it's going to take you to a predetermined destination, perhaps an undesired destination. Unless you turn. This is why they need to look forward and repent. For he writes, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Hey, they died to face God, and you will too. We'll all give an account before God for the road that we've traveled. Don't think that you can escape their same plight. And then verse 6 Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? You can't outrun God's word. See, finally, they need to look down and repent. Hey, they need to look down and open up their Bibles, and they need to read God's word. For the warnings of this book do not fail. You need to look to the book and repent. He says, so they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And this was the Jews' reaction to the prophet's call to repent. 
They agreed. You're right. We've been down this road before. Let's turn and let's travel down God's path. Rumil Robinson played basketball for the Michigan Wolverines. The year was 1989. Early in the season in a game with Wisconsin, Rumil, he stepped to the free throw line late in the game in the fourth quarter with the opportunity to win the game. He had two shots and his team was trailing by one point. Rumil missed both shots and Wisconsin won the game. Well, Rumil felt awful. And for the rest of the season, after every practice, Rumil Robinson shot 100 extra free throws. Made himself shoot 100 extra free throws. So, when he stepped to the line in the last game of the season, in overtime, with the score tied, with just three seconds left, guess what he did? He sank both free throws, and Michigan became national champions. Hey, after his earlier failure, if all Rumil had done was cry a few tears, offer a few hollow apologies, the next time the opportunity arose, the same results would have followed. But you see, he repented. He took action. He turned around. A different outcome, friends, necessitates a change of direction. This is repentance. It's the willingness to change and set a new course. Well, he's calling for the nation to repent. And then verse 7, Zechariah says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. On our calendar, this would be February the 15th, 519 B.C. And this was the night that Zechariah would never forget. For in this one night, God shows the prophet eight visions that he records in these first six chapters. These eight visions span the scope of human history. They project Israel's long history into the future. These eight visions focus on none other than Jesus and his future reign on planet earth. They're messianic and they're millennial. They're wild and they're woolly. They no doubt kept Zechariah up for many, many nights to come as he pondered their meanings. Zechariah sort of reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge. You remember that fateful night for Ebenezer Scrooge. He got swept away in a dream. He was taken by the ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future. It could be that Dickens was inspired by Zechariah, for the prophet here is escorted by an angel into the future. You know, Charles Spurgeon makes a comment about visions, about illustrations in his book, Lectures to My Students. He says this to future preachers about a good illustration. He says, they are windows that let, light, that let in the light. They illuminate interest. They enliven and they capture attention. And I certainly agree. Don't you like a good illustration? Zechariah also liked a good illustration. It's interesting, while Haggai was working hard on the temple, strange things were going on between Zechariah's two temples. 
He was seeing visions. He was getting illustrations. And God gives him a series of eight illustrations that speak comfort and hope to these struggling Jews. He tells us about the first vision in verse 8. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. The color sorrel is a reddish brown. It's the color of splattered mud. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth. And behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now notice, it's the angel of the Lord who stands among the myrtle trees. And as we've discovered throughout the Old Testament, the expression, the angel of the Lord, often refers to a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Here, Jesus directs these four horsemen from the myrtles. Myrtle trees, or the hadassah in Hebrew, is a smallish evergreen. It's more like a shrub, really, than a tree. It has green leaves and flowers. In fact, when the petals are crushed, they emit a fragrance, a beautiful smell. The names myrtle and Esther, by the way, come from the same root word. They're synonyms. Well, the myrtle tree was a symbol for Israel. Check out Isaiah 55, verse 13. The fact that it's evergreen speaks of Israel's longevity. That it's small speaks of Israel's stature and significance among the Gentile nations. And that it emits a pleasant fragrance when crushed speaks of Israel's propensity to grow through persecution. So here in this vision, the Lord's messenger appears in Israel to report on the nations. These horsemen have gone out, they've surveyed the world, and they found that the world is resting quietly and complacently. You see, the world is unaware of God's concerns. It's interesting, in this first vision, the prophet Zechariah, he sees these four horsemen who report to God about what's going on in the world. In his final vision, the eighth vision, Zechariah will see four chariots pulled by horses who go out to execute vengeance for God. God will act on the report. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. No, the Lord loves Israel. He's zealous for Israel. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. I like this. It's interesting. When God dispatched his people Judah and destroyed Jerusalem, as he puts it, he was a little angry. If God had been really angry, it had been worse. But he sent them into exile, and he employed Gentiles, the Babylonians, to do it. God's intent was to turn his people around, 
Yet the tool he used, the Babylonians, they had evil intent. They had hatred and greed. In Jeremiah 27, God even referred to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. And yet the Babylonians failed to honor God and to give him glory. God's desire was to lead his people to repent. The Babylonians just had fun beating them up. And God got angry again. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. In other words, his city will be rebuilt. Haggai, even at that moment, was working on the temple in the city. Now again, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. This is a powerful promise. In essence, he's saying that the times of the Gentiles are coming to a close. Gentile domination is about to end, and God is again going to choose the city of Jerusalem to rule the world. This will ultimately be, be fulfilled when Jesus returns. Now, in verse 18, Zechariah sees a second vision. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. Now, understand an animal's horn is the center of its strength. Thus, a horn was a symbol for military or for political power. In the Old Testament, horns stood for governments. He goes on, and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And so he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, Zechariah doesn't give us the identity of these four horns, but history does. It was Assyria who destroyed Samaria and Israel. It was Babylon who sacked Jerusalem. It was Greece who tormented the Jews between the Testaments. And it was Rome who eventually scattered the Jews who had returned to the land. He says, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. These are actually demolition experts, as we'll see. And I said, what are these coming to do? And so he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. The four craftsmen destroy the four horns who scattered Judah. The point of the prophecy is to encourage these Jews. God will scatter your enemies who scattered you. And who were these craftsmen? Well, Babylon defeated Assyria. Persia defeated Babylon. Rome conquered Greece. Ultimately, the Messiah will overthrow Rome. Jesus will defeat the revived Rome of the last days. The Jewish Talmud, which is a commentary on the Old Testament, has an interesting interpretation of these four craftsmen. And I bring it up only to emphasize how the Jewish scholars saw the Messiah. They actually believed in two messiahs. The Talmud interprets the four craftsmen as follows. The Messiah, son of David, the Messiah, son of Joseph, Elijah, and the angel of righteousness. But notice the two messiahs, the son of David and the son of Joseph. Now, this idea arose from the fact that the Jews were unable to reconcile Scripture. 
there are Old Testament passages that do speak of Messiah as the suffering servant. But there are other verses that describe him as a conquering king. And in the Jews' calculation, how can he be both? The Jewish solution was two Messiahs, a righteous sufferer like Joseph and a conqueror like David. Of course, in light of Jesus, we now know that the conflict can be resolved not with two Messiahs, but with two comings of the Messiah. Messiah came initially as the suffering servant, but Jesus will come again as a conquering king. Chapter 2 begins. Here we have Zechariah's third vision. Then I raised my eyes and looked. Every time he raises his eyes, he's seeing something new, something different. And behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Now apparently after the Jews' exile in Babylon, when they came back to the land, the city of Jerusalem's dimensions changed. The city was being expanded, and so it had to be remeasured. He says, and there was the angel who taught with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. First notice that Zechariah is called a young man. He's called the young man. Apparently, Haggai was the older prophet, the experienced prophet. Zach was the upstart. The Hebrew word nar here meaning young, was actually the word that Goliath used to insult David. You remember when he talked about he's just a little kid? He used the word nar. It's also the word that Jeremiah used of himself when he started his ministry, when he bemoaned the fact he was so young. How young was young? We don't know. But think of Zechariah as a teenager at this time. He might have been quite a young man. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her. Now, the point of this prophecy is that Zacharias foresees the day when Jerusalem's population, its commerce, will expand. So much so that the burgeoning city will spill beyond its walls. Today, the modern city of Jerusalem is a sprawling area, sprawling city. Construction cranes dot the skyline far outside the walls. Of course, a city without walls or a city beyond the walls was unheard of in antiquity. Ancient cities always had walls around them to protect them against invasion and against predators. And yet, Zechariah here sees a day when God himself will be the city's protection, when it will expand beyond its walls, but God will be a fire of protection. We're told here he'll be a fire, a wall of fire all around her. When I, think of, when I hear that a wall of fire, I think of that scene from the Ten Commandments. I watched it the other night where the pillar of fire came down and separated the Hebrew slaves and the coming Egyptian army. This will be the case in the kingdom age when Jesus reigns. Our Lord Jesus will be Jerusalem's security fence. They'll need no other. He'll be a wall of fire all around her. And... He says, I will be the glory in her midst. Think of that. 
One day, Jesus will be the glory of Jerusalem. Here's an amazing prophecy. I will be the glory in her midst. Especially when we remember Ezekiel chapter 10. You remember Ezekiel's vision. He saw the prophet. Uh, The prophet saw the Shekinah glory leaving the temple. And he charted its slow, reluctant departure from the Holy of Holies to the door of the holy place, out through the east gate, to the top of the Mount of Olives, finally ascending back to heaven. As Ezekiel called it, the brightness of the Lord's glory departed from the temple. And yet throughout history, God's glory has come and gone along the same path. The New Testament refers to Jesus as what? Hebrews 1 verse 3, as the brightness of of God's glory. Jesus was the glory, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple. And guess how Jesus, when he appeared on earth as a man, guess how he came up to the temple? On Palm Sunday, he reversed the path the glory took when it departed. He started from the top of the Mount of Olives, actually started from heaven. When he came in a virgin's womb to be born a man, But on that day, Palm Sunday, he started on the top of the Mount of Olives. He came down the Mount of Olives, through the eastern gate, up into the temple once again. He came back to the temple the same way that the glory had departed from it. You remember when Jesus ascended into heaven? Again, he took the disciples out to the Mount of Olives, and it was from the top of the Mount of Olives that he ascended back to heaven. Once again, the glory is going back and forth along that very same path. And guess what? When Messiah returns a second time, according to Zechariah chapter 14, we'll get to it later, he is going to return and touch down where? On top of the Mount of Olives and march himself right into the temple. From heaven to Olivet to the Temple Mount, this is the glory road. Well, Zechariah writes in verse 6, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. He's speaking to his people, the Jews. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. God had spread them out like the four winds. He'd scattered the people, but now he's bringing them back. He tells them to get up, come back from exile, back to the land where you belong. You know, when Zerubbabel returned to the land in 536 B.C., only 50,000 Jews, that was a paltry few, returned with him. Most of the Jews had gotten comfortable in Babel, and they weren't up for the rigors of starting over. But now Zechariah is calling all the exiled Jews to return to their home. For thus, and this is beautiful, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I love this analogy. The apple of your eye is your pupil. And when God designed the pupil, he placed a lid over it to protect it. It's sensitive. It's delicate. It needs protection. And so whenever the pupil gets threatened, that fleshly shield instinctively slaps shut and covers up the pupil. And in the same way, God is saying, it's his instinct 
to protect his people like your eyelid protects the pupil. That's God's instinct. He protects Israel of old and he protects his people today, his church. We are as important and as sensitive to God as the apple of his eye. God never hesitates to run to our defense when we need him. For surely I will shake my hand against them and they shall become spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. What an ominous thought to see God shaking his fist at you. You know, you hear people who shake their fist in God's face. (laughs) One day the tables are going to turn. God's going to shake his fist at us. Israel's oppressors will one day become her spoils. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. And what a comfort this was for those who were working on the temple, to know that God would dwell in the midst of his people. What an incentive for them to do their best working on that temple. And the same motivation is ours when it comes to church work. Knowing that God dwells among us makes the church a special place. This is why we should do our best to build a good church. And then verse 11 tells us, Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has aroused from his holy habitation. Now here's an interesting point. To my knowledge, verse 12 is the only place in the Bible where the biblical lands of Judea and Samaria are actually called the Holy Land. Today, the land is far from holy. It's a contentious land. It's a bloody land. It's a debated land. But when Jesus returns, he will again choose Jerusalem and make it his holy habitation. Now in chapters 1 and 2, God promises to overthrow Gentiles, return the Jews to their land, and rebuild Jerusalem, especially the temple. Now in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to restore the spiritual relationship between he and his people. Chapter 3 is a message to the religious authority of the day, a high priest named Joshua And chapter 4 is a word to the civil authority of the day, a governor named Zerubbabel. Now, it's still night. It's the night of February the 15th, 519 B.C. Zachariah's dreaming. The old boy did a lot of that. When suddenly he sees a fourth vision. It is the trial of Joshua. Chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. This is so provocative. Here we get a glimpse of heaven. And guess what? Even today, there is conflict in heaven. There's conflict going on before God's throne. You think there's conflict on earth? There's conflict in heaven as well today. Sitting on the throne is the angel of the Lord, who we've already identified as is Jesus. And before him is the high priest Joshua, and then there is a third character, Satan, the devil himself. You remember the book of Job paints a similar picture. 
Satan appears before God to oppose his saints, to accuse Job. Revelation 12 verse 10 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night. Satan is relentless in his attempts to dredge up your sins and to hold them against you. Since Satan sinned and forfeited his place in God's kingdom, his goal is to prove that no one else is worthy of admission either. Satan has each of us under surveillance. Did you know Satan is just waiting on you to make a mistake, commit a sin, so that he can throw it in the Father's face and bring condemnation down on you? And I got to tell you, in looking at some of your lives, I think he's got an airtight case. I mean, he's got the eyewitnesses all lined up. DNA links you to the crime scene. Did you know Satan has your blood sample? And he's traced it all the way back to that first man, Adam. He's tied you to the original sin. You're as good as condemned. And if you went to court alone without any kind of representation, you wouldn't stand a chance. Satan is an alligator of a litigator. He would devour you in a heartbeat. Reminds me of the accused thief. Proud guy decided to take on his own defense. So in his cross-examination, he said to his alleged victim, he said, Now, ma'am, did you really get a good look at my face when I took your purse? Whoops. Sort of a slip of the tongue. The amateur attorney got 10 years in jail. But this Joshua, he has a good attorney. What makes him so effective is that he is also the judge. And guess what? When you got the judge as your lawyer, you've got a strategic leg up. You know that. Joshua's defender is the angel of the Lord. And guess what? He is your attorney too. 1 John 2 verse 1 tells us, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When Satan tries to throw up your past, when he tries to bring condemnation upon you, guess who steps up and takes your case? None other than Jesus Christ. He's your advocate if you trust in him. And in verse 2, he comes to Joshua's defense. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. He cuts right to the chase. Satan calls Joshua to the stand. Suddenly the judge tells him, Wait a minute, case closed, objection sustained, evidence inadmissible. As always, the Lord levels the devil. He says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. You remember what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 30? He said, whom he predestined, that is, whom he chose, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God chose and justified Jerusalem. God refused to impute to her her sin. He ignored the many times that the Jews failed him. He treated her as if she had never sinned, even when she had. And in Christ, this is the way God treats his kids. As if we'd never sinned, even when we have. Remember, the New Testament calls all believers a kingdom of priests. We're like Joshua. We're a priest. And like Joshua, God chooses us. 
And whom he chooses, he justifies. Thus, despite the mountain of evidence Satan has against us, his verdict is in our favor. Our sin is now under the blood of Jesus and can never be used against us. If you can't say hallelujah after that, hallelujah. Zechariah says of Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You know, a blacksmith, he lays his brands in the fire until they get red hot. As a matter of fact, if he forgets them, the brand actually melts. But when it gets just right, he yanks it out of the fire, he presses it to the cattle's hide, and he tattoos his mark on the cattle. And our salvation requires a similar act. Joshua and every other believer who has ever lived is like a brand plucked from the fire. Hey, if God had left us in the hot coals, left us on our own, we'd melt in judgment. But in his mercy, God has yanked you and me from the fire to save our soul. We're like brands plucked from the burning. Reminds me of Walter Wyatt. He was a pilot. He flew from Nassau to Miami on a regular basis. Usually took him about 65 minutes. But on December the 5th, 1986, it took him nearly 24 hours. See, unbeknownst to Walter, just before takeoff, thieves broke into his beach craft and stole his navigational equipment. Flying into a storm with nothing on him but a compass. He got lost. Walter White eventually ditched his plane in the sea, and for the next 12 hours, he was encircled by sharks. Each time one of them swam toward him, White would kick him away with his feet. One shark was closing in for the kill when a rescue plane came flying overhead and lifted Wyatt to safety. Just as Walter Wyatt would have never been saved by himself, you and I would have ended up shark bait if God hadn't let his hand down to save us, if he hadn't have plucked us from the sharks, like a brand from the burning, we've been plucked up and saved by the hand of God. Now, verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Since Satan can't win in God's court, he brings his case to us. He reminds us of what a scumbag we were. He tells us we're not worthy to be God's child. Satan points to the dandruff on your collar or your dirty mind or the stain on your shirt. Hey, if he can keep you in a cell of condemnation and shame, he can rob you of the joys of Jesus. This is what he did to the famous reformer Martin Luther. I'll never forget one time I was officiating a wedding. And when I signed the marriage certificate... I didn't think to put the cap back on the pin, and I just stuck it down in my shirt pocket. By the time I got home, I had this huge ink stain on my shirt. It became a nightmare to try and remove. I'm sure you've had your ink stains, your ink spots, but the most famous ink spot of all is in Germany's Wartburg Castle. And it wasn't just a nightmare, 
It was caused by one. For days, Martin Luther was tortured with guilt over his former sins. One night, he had a dream where he saw Satan reading aloud from a long scroll. He was reading a list of Martin's sins. The condemnation just grew and grew as Satan reminded Luther of every evil he had ever done. Finally, Martin Luther, he leaped from his bed. He looked his accuser in the eye and he screamed, It's all true, Satan, and many more sins I have committed in my life which are known to God only. But right at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. He then grabbed the inkwell that was sitting on his desk and he took it and he threw it at the devil hit against the wall and created an ink spot. From that moment on, though, Martin Luther was free from the devil's condemnation. You see, there comes a time when you've got to put your foot down, when you can't let the devil keep jolting you around. You've got to put your foot down. You've got to take a stand on the righteousness of Christ. You've You've got to know that he has said to you, take those dirty garments off of him. Put on rich robes. This is the transaction that occurred in your salvation. You've got to have confidence in it. You've got to put your foot down. What Satan did to Luther, he did to Zechariah. And he tries to do to us today. He wants to bury us under a mound of guilt and condemnation. And there comes a point when we have to rise up and throw an inkwell. We have to say enough is enough. We have to put our foot down on the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. You've got to repeat, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I like to say that every day. It's been said, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. That's a good strategy. We need to understand that like Joshua, we no longer wear filthy garments. And boy, the language here is graphic. The Hebrew word in our text, filthy, literally means excrement covered or dung splattered. Implied here is a bad case of diarrhea. This is us apart from Christ. But now in him, those robes have been taken away. Those stained garments have been replaced with rich robes, we're told. Spiritually in Christ, we now wear designer clothes, the righteousness earned by Jesus. And yes, those clothes are expensive. They are rich robes, for ultimately they were paid for by the precious blood of God's only Son. Never take His righteousness for granted. Put on those robes with a grateful heart. Put them on every day and let the righteousness of Christ color all that you do. And then verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Rich robes and a clean turban. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. The Old Testament priest wore a turban on his head that read holiness to the Lord. This was his motto and it should be ours. Every thought, every action, every attitude should be a reflection of our devotion to Jesus and deserving of the label holiness to the Lord. We are saved by grace, but now we walk in holiness. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, 
and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Like our salvation, Joshua's pardon and his position had nothing to do with his own efforts. It was God's gift to him. But his service was dependent on how he walks with God, how he keeps his commands. And if he does well, a threefold award awaits him. Notice first, he'll judge in God's house. Imagine occupying a position of authority and leadership in heaven. Second reward is he'll have charge over God's courts. He'll be able to lead in the things of God. He'll be a worship leader in heaven if if he is faithful here on earth. And then third, notice this. God will give him places to walk among those who stand there. This is a little bit more difficult to understand. Here the Jewish Targum offers an interpretation. It reads, In the resurrection of the dead, I will revive you and give you feet walking among the seraphim. You remember, seraphim were angels. Apparently, he's saying, if we obey God now in heaven, we'll be allowed to do the stuff that only angels do today. How cool is that? You'll be eating angel food cake all the time. You'll be doing angel stuff. What a cool deal is that? Imagine being allowed to serve among the angels. Verse 8, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Joshua is a sign, a wondrous sign. The word Joshua in Greek is Jesus. This high priest Joshua was a sign of our high priest Jesus. Remember, Jesus too was a priest, not after the Old Testament order of mortal priests. But Jesus is an eternal type of priest. We're told that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And in comparing Joshua to Jesus, Zechariah uses two idioms that speak of the Messiah. My servant and the branch. Jesus is Yahweh's servant. And he's also a shoot or a limb or a branch from David's family tree. The branch is depicted in the Old Testament in four ways. In Jeremiah 23, Messiah is called a royal branch. makes him a king. In Zechariah 3 verse 8 here, the branch is the servant of God. He's a servant. In Zechariah 6 verse 12, we'll see that he's called the man whose name is the branch. In other words, he was a man. His humanity gets emphasized. And in Isaiah 4 verse 2, he's called the branch of the Lord. Literally, the offspring of God himself, God's son. Now, you put all four of those things together, and the Messiah, or the branch, is a king, he is a servant, he is a man, and he is the son of God. And this is the fourfold representation of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. The Gospels depict Jesus in the same manner. Matthew describes him as the king the heir of David's throne. Mark describes him as that man of action, that unstoppable servant. Luke highlights Jesus' humanity. He was a man like you and me. And then, of course, John portrays Jesus as God himself, the Son of God. He emphasizes Jesus' deity. Verse 9, the Messianic idioms continue, for behold the stone. Here's another metaphor for Messiah. In Isaiah 28, 16, Jesus is called the cornerstone, the tried stone. 
In Psalm 118, he is the stone the builders rejected, but has now become the chief cornerstone. In Daniel 9, he is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands or without human intervention. In Old Testament and in the New Testament, the stone is a name for Messiah. Behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Wow, a stone with seven eyes on top of it. That's a strange thing to think about. It may correspond with the seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit we find in Isaiah 11. There Isaiah says, There shall be come forth a rod or a shoot from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And notice the seven manifestations. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, a seven-fold manifestation. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, in a spiritual sense, this was fulfilled at Calvary. On the cross, Jesus uttered those words, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. All that needed to be done for us to be forgiven was done that day, in one day. Yet in a historical sense, this phrase probably refers to a day yet future when the Jews as a nation repent of their sin and look upon whom, whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12 verse 10 will describe that day We'll wait till we get there before we look into all its implications. Well, finally, verse 10. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And what a beautiful picture that is. When the Jews embrace Jesus as their Messiah, it will usher in a new day for planet Earth, a messianic era of peace and harmony. Everyone will be neighborly to each other. What a day that'll be. In every corner of the globe, on every high hill, folks on every continent will live together. They'll break bread together in peace and in harmony. Everyone will break bread together under his own vine, under his fig tree. It'll be a beautiful day.